Hello, and welcome to Fun Problems, the problems of fun. I'm AJ Brandon, and today we have a special guest, John Rieger. Welcome to the show. Hi, hi. Great to be here. Peter is normally my co-host, if this is your first episode listening, but Peter has a busy month this month, so we're bringing on some special guests. Before we get started on everything, John, could you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, how you got started in the hobby, and how that led you to this podcast here today? Yeah. For those of you who don't know me, I'm John Brieger. I work as a freelance developer and designer running the Brieger Creative Studio. We're a team based in Sunnyvale, California, that helps publishers take games from prototype to product. And that might include running playtesting programs, designing new game content, designing solo modes, expansions, sort of anything that can help push a game from its initial design all the way through to the finished product that gets to your table. Who else is part of that team? We have four people here in the Bay Area, uh, two additional developers other than myself, Michael Dunsmore and John Velgus, a producer and project manager, Chris Solis. And then in Australia, we work with Quillsilver Studio, and that's Dan May and Brenna Newman. Very cool. So for context for the listeners, John has worked with the company that I work for and Peter owns Jellybean before. That's sort of where that connection comes from. That and, of course, Peter is my nemesis. <laughs> Do you want to tell listeners a little bit about that? Because the only thing I know is that I occasionally see you going at it back and forth on Twitter playfully. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very lucky that I was able to book a slot on the podcast when Peter is not here so that we can trash talk him in his absence. As this tradition. He is a blue bearded supervillain, as far <laughs> as I'm concerned. I'm not sure exactly what he's busy with. I imagine that he's sort of renovating his villain lair, updating the shark pool, getting the you know moon-destroying laser in place. I'm not exactly sure what he gets up to, but that's what I picture in my head when I picture Peter being very busy with other work. As one of his minions, uh, employees, I can neither confirm nor deny the existence of a shark tank. So you focus a lot on development, but particularly focus a lot on solo development. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I have sort of fallen into solo mode design as part of the other things that we offer clients who are, are coming to us for development. I've done 13 solo modes so far that have been published, and I think we have another four or five that have been designed but not published yet, including one for a, a new Jelly Bean game release. I really like the puzzle of designing for solo play. You're trying to replicate some of the interactions and what I would consider the touch points of a game for a player in a way that doesn't burden them or cause them overload. And there's a lot of nuance in getting the tension of a solo mode right, the rule set light enough and lean enough. And it's just a really nice challenge as a designer and developer to look at a game system and, and figure out how to represent it for solo play. I've talked before in this podcast that the main thing that draws me to board games is the fellowship of playing with other people. So I have literally zero experience playing solo modes for board games ever. So I'm not able to offer a whole lot of feedback here. This is why we brought on you as the expert. <laughs> do you want to tell everybody, what do you think the main draws are of a solo mode? Why would other people play solo modes? It's interesting. I personally am a very social gamer, and I actually do not play very many solo modes outside of work. I play quite a lot for research, so I do play other solo modes than my own. But the growth of the solo gaming community in board games has been 
astronomical over the last four or five years. Obviously, solo modes are something that has a rich tradition in gaming since sort of the last half of the 20th century. Starting in the war games community, there have been solo modes published for many of the strategic war games going back decades and decades and get decades. But in hobby gaming, we really have seen the growth coming in the last five, six years with the rise of new generations of hobby gamers, especially, in my opinion, gamers who are becoming parents and we're seeing people may not have time to get to a social group outside of their family, you know, their, their regular game group. So, you know, maybe mom is setting up a solo game on the table just to play at night while there's some downtime or, you know, maybe in the last two years, of course, we have the pandemic fueling a rise of solo modes as well. We also have the influence of more and more gamers who are coming from a video game background and are used to the idea of gaming being a solitary activity. And if you started in playing a lot of video games and might be making the jump to board games, some of the same things that might appeal to you about sitting down and having a solo entertainment experience with a game in video games might also appeal to you in a board game, depending on, of course, how tolerant you are of doing some of the work in the system that a video game is going to just do for you. That makes a lot of sense. I think the only other one I can think of is people who want to learn the game before they bring it to the rest of their group. Yeah, that's something we see a, a lot as a play pattern. It's also just a good way to sort of test yourself as a almost like a puzzle. So it's not necessarily from a lot of the solo gamers that I've talked to a substitute for playing games with other people. It's just a different way to have an experience with that game and with that product. So someone comes to you, they want a solo mode. Where do you even start? Generally, I start by looking at the entire game, playing it holistically, and evaluating how the players in the game are interacting with each other, what I call the touch points of the game. I usually am looking at the two-player experience in particular for a solo mode. Generally, a the majority of the time, the way the solo mode works is going to try to replicate a two-player experience for one person. That's not always 100% true, but that's usually where I personally start. The key thing is that you don't have to have your solo mode work or interact like a real player. And different solo modes I've designed have varying levels of, of fidelity in how true they are to the way a player would play that game. Some of them, I think I maybe went a little too far and the upkeep on a player to run those solo modes maybe is a little too high. And as I've designed more solo modes, I think I've gotten better at figuring out what can be abstracted out of the solo rule set and what is important to represent. I'm a big fan of not just having the solo play run the game, but also have a little bit of a personality to it, a way that it plays the game that allows players to form a strategy that might counteract the play of the opponent. That's not true for every type of game. Sometimes I do something more like a beat your own score or a puzzle, but you really have to look at how the players in the game are interacting with each other. I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all approach to solo mode design. It's about representing the strengths and the fun that are part of that game 
for one player. That's really interesting. In Magic the Gathering, they have an online version where you can draft cards, but without other players. You can draft it against bots. And what they said was when they were working on it, they realized that they can't have all the bots just do the optimal thing. Because if every bot is just doing the optimal thing following the numbers and crunching it, well, then they end up doing the exact same thing every time and they're easily exploited. And so what they did was they created, like you said, different personalities for them. I'm not sure exactly what those personalities are because they don't disclose that degree of information. But the fact that that's something that you're also considering when you're designing the slow modes is, is pretty interesting to me. Can you talk a little bit more about like an example of how you would do that? Yeah. So in an upcoming Jellybean Games release, we have a what we're calling the collaborator robot. The collaborator robot is going to simulate a two-player game, though you can also run the solo opponent in a multiplayer game. So you could play with two human players and the robot to simulate a three-player game if you wanted a little more tension and, and spaces blocked off in the game. In that, there are two main drivers of the way the opponent, the solo opponent takes its action. One is the resources that it has available, and the other is a randomizer factor in the board. I generally like having a randomizer in most of my solo opponents because they're going to introduce some level of uncertainty and unpredictability. Different levels of games that have different amount of randomness sort of in the core system might demand different levels of randomness in their solo opponent. And in that one, you're comparing sort of the intersection of those two things. So to give a really abstract example, if I have a green robot worker and the conveyor belt is showing a red resource on it, I'm going to compare on a little grid chart that's on a solo map I'm going to find green worker, red resource, and at the intersection of those two things is going to be an action printed on that grid. And that system in itself is very quick to resolve. I'm comparing two values. I'm looking at a chart. But what's nice is the shift of the types of actions that are represented in that chart, how it takes and places those actions onto the board can be adjusted. So we can include multiple of those charts in the box, and one might be focused very heavily on blocking off spaces on the board from players and collecting lots of resources, while another one might be focused on efficiency and trying to win the game as fast as possible. Another one might be focused on converting resources and opens up avenues for players to sort of attack it by denying it the resources it needs. And because they're not just varying levels of difficulty, but they're also playing the game differently, it provides a different level of challenge for players who are coming back to the solo mode repeatedly because, again, you can't just play the same way against the different sheets. You're going to have to find a strategy to beat it, just like you would if your human opponent was trying a new strategy you hadn't seen before. That makes a lot of sense. I've seen a lot of solo modes. Again, I haven't played a lot of them, but I've read through the rules to a bunch of them out of interest. And it seems like what you're saying there is very effective at making them like you said, have a little bit more personality because it seems like a lot of the time the opponents just look like an elaborate flowchart or like a deck of cards. But what you're trying to do is make them feel like a real opponent, right? In this case, yes. Sometimes the right choice is a deck of cards and that is going to drive the best sort of balance of uncertainty and clarity of the action that your solo opponent can take. Sometimes the right choice is not to make the robot feel like a player at all. When I did the solo mode for cartographers, the only thing the solo mode truly does 
is place monsters on your sheet when an ambush card is drawn, which is something that an opponent would do for you if it was a multiplayer game. Other than that, the solo mode is mostly math, and it's about figuring out what are the expected range of scores that a player might have, and then giving players a rating on their performance based on their score compared to the expected value of those scores. That game is a very puzzly experience, and the value in replaying the solo mode isn't just to try to achieve a high score, which has a lot of randomness in it, but seeing the different ways all of the variable scoring goals and their content can intersect and getting a new challenge for yourself every time. So I wasn't worried about giving you a really active opponent in the cartographer solo mode because the challenge and the interest in the solo mode for that game is coming from the game scoring content, not from the solo opponent. But that's not necessarily true when you talk about a game that has a very high level of multiplayer interaction where you do want to have all those touch points where your opponent is going to mess with your strategy, you're going to mess with your opponent's strategy. And that's an important part of some other types of games. You mentioned cartographers, which is a rolling right for those who aren't familiar. That genre seems like it's very well fit for design solo modes. My question is, is there anything I'm missing for those? Like, what are the things that are actually tricky about the quote unquote multiplayer solitaire games designed solo modes for them? Some of it is the tension of a game is different, even in a multiplayer solitaire game where you might be racing to a victory condition or competing indirectly for resources, you still need to replicate that tension for the player. So if there is a race in the game, racing against a solo mode is not the same as racing against a human opponent in terms of the uncertainty and the efficiency. So sometimes you need to add an additional source of tension or an additional uh, objective for players to shoot for. So floor plan is another roll and write I worked on where I designed solo mode. In that, we have a timer. It runs across sort of the bottom of your sheet. And the timer sets the an absolute maximum end game for the play session. But if you can finish the game faster, for every additional turn you have left in the timer, you're in a bonus point. Mm. And that creates a tension that isn't in the multiplayer game and is sort of replacing the race tension of who is going to end the game that might come in that multiplayer experience, even though that is a no-player interaction, pretty much multiplayer solitaire game. That's a really creative solution to that. So when you're designing a solo mode, what you're trying to do is not necessarily do a one-to-one for the experience, but you're trying to take the big picture feelings that you get from those experiences and generate those again, possibly in a very different way. Is that what you're saying? Hopefully not a very different way. I want the experience that you're going to have playing the game solo to be fundamentally the same experience you would have playing the game multiplayer. And the problem is if there's a core emotional part of that experience that isn't present solo, I want to figure out some other way to give you that emotional part of the experience. So to me, those changes aren't about making a different experience. It's about finding the best way to represent the game as a whole for players. Those are some of the most interesting challenges because there are really big parts of games that are difficult to represent solo. Not every game should have a solo mode, but it's always interesting to try to make solo modes for games that are traditionally hard to be soloable. So for example, Lock Up or Role Player Tale, it's in the same line as Cartographers and Role Player, also by Thunderworks Games. 
there's a significant bluffing component in the multiplayer game where your opponents have a limited pool of workers and they're playing some face down and some face up. They all have numbers on them. And the opponent in the solitaire play, the guards, have face up and face down cards. But because they're placed randomly by an AI, it doesn't feel like bluffing. It's not the same emotional tension as figuring out the intelligent plays of a human opponent. So instead, there's a very small push your luck puzzle in the solo play where you're slowly uncovering the face down cards that the guards have placed for you. It's not bluffing and it doesn't try to be a bluffing experience in solo. It replaces some of the emotions of figuring out what your opponents are up to with a slightly different game mechanism. How worried are you about adding too much rules overhead to the solo experience? Because a lot of the times that I see it, it's like they take the regular game and then they layer on these extra rules for the AI opponent instead of changing something fundamental about the game. Yeah, that's always a big concern for me and something I think I've gotten better at as I've designed more and more solo modes in terms of the size of the rule sets I'm hoping continues to get smaller and smaller and smaller. The number of changes that are required to make the game function for solo should be, in my opinion, as minimal as possible. I haven't always succeeded, and some people who have played certain solo modes of mine, you may think, well, I played a John Brigger solo mode, and it was really hefty. For that, I say, hopefully play some of my new ones, and they've improved. <laughs> the goal is you don't want to make the player do more work to run the automated opponent than they are spending engaging in their own thinking, their own strategy about their own play. You want the player's turn to be the focus of every game by a wide margin. So not just that the solo mode is equal amount of time to run as a player's turn or even slightly less. You know, Carla Kopp, who is an excellent, excellent solo mode designer, I think she said she shoots for a quarter or less time. So for every minute of the player spends thinking and strategizing about their own turns during a game, she shoots for 15 seconds of resolving the solo action. And I don't know if I've achieved that in all of my designs yet, but I am, am very impressed by that goal, and I think that's something to shoot for. Are there any concessions that you're willing to make when porting the experience? I am usually willing to sacrifice depth of solo play for conciseness of rules and lessening of overhead, especially when we talk about that game context of a family who's just gotten the game for the first time or someone who's learning the game through the solo mode to then maybe take it to their multiplayer group later. So when you talk about adding the solo rule set and layering that on top of learning all the base rules of the game, I don't want to overwhelm people with really learning essentially the rules of two games at once. So the less changes that can be made to the game in order to make it function for solo, the better. I am willing to generally sacrifice some of the richness of strategy in a, a solo experience to make more concise rules. That makes sense. For those of you who are listening and are freaking out like, oh no, I'm losing some of my precious, precious depth. Typically, it's not going to be like your game is just evaporating. It's much more about the cost benefit ratio of every rule that you add to the game, which is something we've talked about a lot in the podcast is every time you have a rule, you have to ask yourself, is it worth it? Normally, we have to have a very strict standard for what rules get allowed into the game. And what you're saying is yours is just that much more strict. Yes, 
I think you really have to be laser focused on boiling down the identity of a game when you're working on solo and not let yourself get distracted by one-to-one realistically simulating a human opponent. It's more important about simulating the ways a human opponent interacts with the player and making sure that you are understanding where the strategic decisions that drive a player are coming from so that they can make those strategic decisions for themselves and still interact with the strategy level of the game without being bogged down, also running the strategic decisions for some really complex AI. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like a real challenge, especially when you say like you're trying to make it cater to whatever game it's working for, but you want to make sure that what you're doing is still going to feel to some degree like the original game. Yeah, and something I've been working on a lot more of, and this is true for the upcoming Jellybean games released in Robotopia, the game has an enormous conveyor belt of tiles that are used for several things within the game, including building some of the end game conditions for players in the multiplayer game. Something I'm always really interested in for solo modes is figuring out ways to build the randomizer and inputs for the solo opponent back into the core systems of the game. So rather than have a separate AI deck that contains all these actions, can I include those in some way in some component that already exists within the framework of the system. So for Robotopia, we were actually able to drive the AI based on the conveyor belt of tiles. So it doesn't feel like it is some tacked on thing that you're just now you're flipping this deck of AI action cards, you're using a core component of the game in an additional way. I think that's a really fun place to explore and a way to I'm trying to push myself as a solo designer in a lot of the new solo strategy modes I'm making. This is sort of the second, third game I've I've done this approach for, and I think those are some of my strongest solo modes. Do you also have it where the actions of the player cause reactions by the AI? Yes. So because, and this is one of the benefits of putting the randomizer into a core system of the game, the player has actions that interact with that conveyor belt. They can take actions that will shift it and move the tiles around and rearrange them on that belt. And because that belt feeds into the actions of the AI, now there's a new avenue of interaction between the two players because I can take an action as a player on the belt that's going to change the way the AI is going to take its next turn. And I might use that strategically as a a method of interacting with the solo opponent. Which also mirrors the main play of the game, where you might be messing with the order of the items on the conveyor belt to you know, mess up with other people's plans, right? Right. And in that case, it would be their plans to take those same actions that you can take. But in this case, it's even more generalized because you can uh, mess with its plans to do sort of any of the actions in the game. You mentioned earlier that you replaced the bluffing component of a game with a pusher lock element, which to me is extremely clever as those are... And not the same, but they're they're kind of adjacent feeling, at least. There's like this moment of excitement, and you're seeing if you can pull off this thing, essentially. Are there any other examples that you have of highly interactive mechanics that you have boiled down into solo modes? I think some of my most successful solo mode designs are ones where there aren't that many experiential changes. Hmm. The example I used for, for lockup solo mode 
was because bluffing was such a core component of that game, it needed to be replaced from an emotional perspective. But I'd rather just keep all of the mechanics exactly intact if possible. And sometimes that includes telling a publisher that I don't think a solo mode is a good fit for a game. Hmm. So for example, Kabuto Sumo is a recent release from BoardGameTables.com. Uh, I served as the developer on that alongside Michael Dunsmore from my team. We looked at the game. It's a dexterity game in which you are pushing discs into a ring, sort of like a coin pusher machine and arcade. And we said we could technically design a solo mode that would choose where to place these discs and then maybe would rely on the players to actually push them physically into the ring. But it wouldn't replicate the fun experience of the chaos of pushing a disc and not knowing where it goes because you as a player are now sort of pushing both sides of this, this puzzle. So we said, you know what? We think this product is going to be stronger without this solo mode. People should just play it two players. And that, that's okay to look at a game and say, you know what? This isn't the right fit for solitaire play. If someone brought you a social deduction, you'd be like, well, I don't know what you want me to do with something like this, right? <laughs> right. You know, certain types of party games or deduction games aren't necessarily going to translate well. Mm -hmm. But sometimes there are clever solutions. So, for example, in deduction games, if you have the budget and the resources, you can design apps that simulate other players and their hidden information and manage the flow of a hidden information in the game in a way that a human player can't. Right. Something like a Hanabi would fit very well with a system like that. Yeah. While you might not be able to have a cardboard AI, sometimes you can have an app that allows you to play the game solo with your physical copy plus an app assistant. Sometimes the best way to handle a solo opponent for something like a deduction game where there's a high amount of hidden information that needs to be tracked and managed is not to use a cardboard solution at all. But if you have the resources to develop one, use a digital application where the player is using the, their physical copy of the game, but the AI opponent is managed by an app. Maybe that's a website browser, or maybe it's a you know traditional phone app. One game that I think is a really good example of this is The Search for Planet X from Renegade Games, which has a very, very brilliant app for a deduction game it manages all the hidden information and makes a really, really smooth experience when you're trying to figure things out. It's a lot of resources, or it can be a lot of resources for a small publisher to be able to pull off an app. I know that there's a lot more headaches in that than you might think at first blush. Like getting on the App Store and iOS is already a headache and making sure it works with phones. <laughs> yes. And that's something that I've seen a couple indie publishers sort of sidestep some of the issues in developing applications by developing a mobile optimized website. Right. You don't have to load onto the app store or write uh, code outside of a website app. And those are a little lower development burden, but they're also maybe a little less professional than a fully featured iOS or Android app. Mm -hmm. It is nice when the solo players don't feel like second class citizens. Yes, I think the era of solo mode as a stretch goal on Kickstarter is over. <laughs> You need to be planning your solo mode in advance. You don't want to deliver something that feels tacked on or an afterthought. It should be a part of your development and planning process if you're taking a product to market to decide whether it's the right fit for a solo mode. 
the solo community is small, but it's growing. I don't think every game released, even you know, hobby strategy Euro games, need to have solo modes. But if you are taking a product, especially to crowdfunding, the solo segment there is larger than it is at the retail side of the market. Mm-hmm. So it's worth considering, especially if you are an indie publisher headed to Kickstarter, the value of a solo mode, it might bring in additional revenue and additional momentum on your Kickstarter campaign. Yeah, if you see that there's a solo mode as a stretch goal, it immediately sets off a red flag. Even if you plan on putting in an appropriate amount of effort to make it the best it can be, it's going to make people think that it's a last minute thing that you're just throwing in there haphazardly. Whereas if it's in the product to begin with, not only do you get those backers initially, because if a solo player sees that it doesn't have a solo mode initially, then they might just skip it anyway. But also having it initially telegraphs to them, this is something that we have already considered. This is something we're taking seriously. Yeah. And, you know, they want quality game experiences. It's not just they're willing to take anything that can be played solo and, oh, that's my solo game. There are enough great solo games and great solo modes out there that gamers who play primarily solo can be picky. And why would they want to be an afterthought on your campaign when there are tons of designers, developers, and publishers who are working hard to bring them quality solo content? Mm Mm-hmm. If I recall correctly, the largest Facebook group is actually the Solo Gamers group. Last I checked, anyway. I'm not 100% sure on that. I think there are a couple that are larger, but the Solo Gaming Facebook groups are are fairly large. They are active communities, and games definitely get discussed through the lens of their solo play. So, Mm -hmm. What do you think designers can do to make their games more conducive to solo modes, whether that's them designing from the beginning with the intent that they themselves will add that or whether they just want it to make it a little bit easier if that gets added down the line by the publisher? That's a tricky question because, as I said, my approach on solo modes is about bringing out the best possible game experience. And some of what I look for in games is really interesting player interactions that have to then be replicated in in some way in a solo mode. So I don't want to tell designers, oh, well, you should avoid these types of complex player interactions because often those can lead to really wonderful, emotional, dynamic moments in, in play. I think removing that from the tools and vocabulary of designers is wrong. Some things I think to think about is the overall player scaling of your game. How does your game's experience change as you take it from two players to three players to four players to five players? If you have a really solid sense of the way that your game space sort of expands and contracts as you add or remove players from a multiplayer session, that same line of thinking can often be used when you're looking at the solo play as well. That's something I think people can sort of pay more attention to and is also going to make your game a better multiplayer experience. Mm. Would you say it's easier to playtest solo games because you don't need somebody else or do you still send that off to people and get feedback? I play my solo modes myself first to sort of pick the low-hanging fruit, as it were, in bugs, errors, etc. But I'm not always a good judge of is my own solo mode fun? So I do try to get it in front of people. Usually I play it a couple times myself. Then I have someone play it, but I'm watching them there in person and I'm just watching them go through the motions of solo so I can be there in person. And then maybe towards the end, I would send it off for you know a remote, non-observed test. 
does it take a long time to go through that process or do you feel like it's pretty similar to how normal board game development works? I'm often doing it in parallel with standard development work. So I might be working on card content and multiplayer testing and doing the solo mode in parallel. So maybe while I'm testing the solo mode, I'm also testing new card powers at the same time. I'm rarely segmenting the solo development from the rest of the game's experience holistically. I do usually wait to do the solo modes until towards the end of the development cycle when the game's structure is pretty set to make sure that the solo mode is capturing the whole game experience and I don't want to start too early, add something during development, and then have to rework the whole solo mode to make sure that it's capturing that as well. That makes a lot of sense. You've mentioned a couple times different challenges you've had, like with the bluffing and stuff. What's the biggest challenge you've bumped up against when trying to translate something to a solo experience? I think one of the hardest things to do in solo is write concise rules for moving pieces across space on a board. Solo modes are good at taking things, they're good at placing things, but moving things is a very complex system of interactions to represent concisely, and different Atomas and, and solo modes throughout different games have represented this differently. But if you think about all of the things that go into moving pieces across a board, you have what are the pieces that are being moved? Where are the pieces going to? And how are they moving there? Then all the edge cases that might result from that. So are there limits on the number of pieces that can be in a space? What happens if the best space to move to is full? How does it pick the space that it's moving to? How does it pick the space that it's moving from? Or even more complex movements that might say moving from multiple spaces to one space or from one space to multiple spaces. Those are very, very complex sets of interactions and different Atomas have different ways of resolving them. I have had mixed success on replicating this in games. Some games have lended themselves to it very well. So for example, in Refuge Terror from the Deep, the cooperative mode has a little AI that runs the Kraken and it's a game that's played in a, a square grid of columns and the tentacles of the Kraken sort of move like a space invader. So they start towards the top of the board near the Kraken's head. And then the solo mode AI is going to run them down the board in rows. Like they're sort of falling towards the bottom of the board. That was a, a very clean way to represent that system. But other games have much more complex grids. Maybe they're hexagons, maybe they're amorphous blob shapes like in many area control games. So I think that's one of the hardest challenges for big complex games that have maps. And I don't know that there's a solo mode I'm 100% happy with the way all the pieces move, if it has moving pieces. The cleanest solo modes I personally have worked on have tended to be those that don't have pieces moving around on the board. It's more adding them and taking them away is a much cleaner way to do a lot of things. I'd never even considered that, but yeah, in something like Blood Rage, how on earth do you track which province you move from A to B to? I guess that makes a lot of sense where you say like it's more about them just coming onto the space rather than them moving through some sort of a system that intelligently tells them where to go. Yeah, it's very, very tricky to figure out when do you need to represent that and when do you not need to represent that. Maybe it's not necessary in a game, maybe it is, and... 
that's a lot of the the sort of the judgment call of a solo designer. I think the sort of the transition in a lot of these designs isn't just how to do something, but a lot of your decisions are about trade-offs of I could make this piece move a little more like a real player would move their piece, but the rules are an extra paragraph or but it takes 30 more seconds to resolve the action. Uh, and you have to exercise your own judgment to when it's important enough to add that extra complexity and when it isn't. Yeah, Peter and I are working on a uh, mega game right now and the map system for it has to be resolved very, very quickly. We need you know 10 plus players to be able to execute the actions that they've been preparing for, possibly with many different units all over this huge board in under five minutes. The way that we ended up doing that was we just abstracted it a little bit more. Before we had the units and they would move and they'd be blocked by enemy units and you'd have this whole system of prevent enemies from going to your spot and from like moving and attacking. But that just didn't work. It was too slow. And it's a little bit less thematic that I can just walk straight through the section that has your units in it and there's no consequence. Like how did that army just slip past us and we didn't even notice? But I found that because we abstracted a little bit more, players didn't seem to feel like it was a thematic either. And so that's one of those cases where it felt like it might be the wrong direction. It felt like it might be a little too athematic, but we tested it and players were actually comfortable with that level that we had hit. It does take the context of the situation to determine what the right move is. Yeah. And that's where playtesting comes in. You know, you really need to put the time and, and the care into testing your designs for, you know, for solo or for multiplayer, right, to make sure that you're hitting the right notes. Mm -hmm. And for me also, solo has a lot in common with cooperative design in terms of making sure that you're getting the right tension and the right difficulty for players and that that puzzle of finishing the game and winning the game is there for people. I'm a big believer that the tension of the game should be focused around how can I win the game and making winning the game and executing my strategy interesting rather than how do I not lose being the primary focus. And you have to figure out that balance in terms of the interaction with the solo opponent, especially for ones that have less randomness or less uncertainty in them, because the more the player can dig into the nitty gritty of how the solo opponent is going to respond to their actions, the more they might be focusing on that. How do I not lose? How do I mess with the the solo over engaging with the primary material of the game? Yeah. So one thing we've talked about on the show before is the information horizon, which for listeners who've just jumped in, basically that means how far out can you plan moves? How far can you predict the consequences of actions? And so again, with the very wide horizon, you can see the repercussions of many, many rules in advance. So if you're looking at a solo mode and you can see the AI is going to do this, then this, then this, then this, and you can see, you know, 12 turns down the line, then it makes you feel like you have to plan for 12 turns down the line. Whereas if there's some ambiguity as to what exactly the AI is going to do, that makes it so you don't have to stress out so much exactly what the AI is going to do. You can just make the best move for that turn. That's mostly what you're talking about right now, right? Yeah, and sometimes there's ways you can sort of cleverly cheat, right? That goes back to that personality of if you can bias the AI towards taking certain actions and certain weightings, then 
you can string together a series of individual discrete moves that don't require the AI to plan ahead into something that feels like an opponent that's alive and pursuing a cohesive strategy across the whole of the game. And while from a mechanical standpoint, that's not really what it's doing, the connections between all of its moves across the whole game can provide that experience from an opponent level to the player. Balance is a very hot button issue. What's your philosophy for balancing games? And is that answer different for solo games versus for multiplayer games? Hopefully uh, my clients all still keep me on after this. I am often as the developer, sort of the final check on balance for many of the games I work on. Mm -hmm. I ultimately don't believe that balance is very important for a game's experience. I don't think that games are required to be balanced to be fun or that balancing a game more tightly is going to improve the experience of most games. However, I do think the perception of balance and the perception of fairness for players is very important from a, a marketing standpoint and from an emotional standpoint. Players need to feel like everyone at the table is having a fair game, and that can be more important than actually providing a fair game in many cases. Just because a game is perfectly balanced doesn't make it interesting. I am more interested in trying to incentivize big, exciting moments within play than I am trying to incentivize perfectly fair play. The example I commonly use is I sort of construct what I call the perfectly balanced game. Imagine a game in which we each take a turn at a time, and on your turn, you take one action. Right now, in our game, we have just one action that's available to all players, and that action is I gain one point. So this is a perfectly balanced game. So on my turn, I gain a point. AJ, what do you do on your turn? I think I'll gain a point. Cool, great. Game's perfectly balanced. We're just gaining one point a turn. But it's not interesting. And it's really easy, especially for those of us in sort of the Euro game side, to essentially make a very elaborate version of the let's gain a point game. Yep. <laughs> so instead of saying I gain a point, we're going to say there are now two actions. Gain two wood and turn in two wood to get two points. <laughs> On my turn, I gain two wood. AJ, what do you do? I <laughs> gain two wood. <laughs> On my turn, I take my two wood and I turn it into two points. AJ, what do you do? I'm going to turn my two wood into two points, baby. <laughs> yeah. So that's essentially the same game we played before, just with a couple extra steps. And you, you could see we can keep adding layers to this, right? I could say, well, now there's also an action that lets you gain three stone. And I can turn two wood and three stone into a boat. And I can turn a boat into six points, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's important to realize that just chaining a sequence of conversions uh, that are all of the same baseline efficiency results in a very smooth, textureless experience. And a lot of the time, what I'm looking for as a developer is places to add texture and add bumps. So we're not just trying to smooth over the rough edges of a game, you know, streamline the complexity, which we do quite a lot of as developers. We're looking for ways to make the fun parts of the game more fun and really provide that richness in content and opportunity and strategy. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't always understand about the development rule. They see us more as problem solvers, 
but a lot of the time we're also adding and strengthening the core of the designer's vision to bring that out even more in the game. Yeah, I think what you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that what you're trying to do is you're trying to streamline the rules, but you're trying to make sure that the gameplay itself isn't flat. Yes, yes. And there's certainly some game companies who I will not mention that I think vastly overpolish their games because the whole games, as you say, yeah, they're mostly pretty balanced, but they're not particularly interesting. It ends up being a lot of conversion, a lot of the same things happening over and over again. Yeah. And I think what you said there is absolutely key, the perception of fairness. And I think fairness, maybe more so than balance, is the key thing. Every player wants to feel like they had a shot. They don't need to know that every avenue was equally viable, but they want to know that at the beginning of the game, they had a chance. Maybe it didn't pan out, maybe they got unlucky, but the game was fair to begin with, at least, I think. Yeah. One of the things that I like to think about when we're talking about sort of strengthening a game's core vision and texturing the experience so it isn't flat, it isn't overly smooth, is what I call the promise of a game. So to me, a game's promise is its title, its cover, its theme, and and genre, and maybe the first sort of two sentences of its gameplay description, right? Robotopia is a game in which you play as factory worker unions in a robot factory that makes robots uniting to overthrow the master robot and establish a communist robot utopia. And that theme description and setting the artwork on the front of the cover makes a promise to players about the type of experience that they are going to have. And to me, one of the most important things that a game can do is deliver on its promise. And to, that's where I often feel like there are some games that are very highly regarded that I personally don't like tend to be games that make a promise and they deliver a different thing. And sometimes the other thing they deliver is really good, but it's not the thing they promised me. Mm-hmm. I gave the example before in this podcast of a time that there was a game called Food Truck Champions, and that game looks like it's a little kid's game. It's very cartoony and colorful and light. That game is literally Glory to Rome. It's a Glory to Rome clone. I had some pick that up, and I used to work at a store, and they picked it up and asked me, do you you think this would be appropriate for my 13-year-old daughter? And I was like, no, absolutely not. If I didn't know any better, and I took a glance at it, it's like a minimum wage employee at at a Target or something. Yeah, it says 12 plus, looks cute and colorful. Yeah, you make burgers and stuff. Sure, why not? But you're right. It does not deliver on the promise that it tells the customer. Yeah. That isn't to say that designers shouldn't make hobby games that have unusual themes or themes that fit outside of the sort of generic core classic wheelhouse of boring fantasy and sci-fi. Those are the only things that are acceptable themes European city name with a dour old white guy on the cover. (laughs) You should experiment, you should innovate, and you should risk it, but you want to set expectations and frame the experience that players are going to have for them because if they come into your game with the right mindset, they're going to have a better time. Your promise is is a service to your players. It's not a spoiler. Mm -hmm. Going back to the balance thing too, If players start playing your game and it is balanced, but you know that new players don't perceive it as being balanced, then they're going to drop your game because they think it's trash. Whereas if the game is a little imbalanced, but it looks balanced to the players who are just starting out, 
Then they might play the game. They might start liking it. Then they've got layers of strategy to unpack. They get to start to realize, oh, wait, this card's actually really good. This is a lot better than I thought. And then as they play the game more and become experts, it's not that the game is problematic because it's unbalanced, because you can just adjust your strategy to it. If there's an auction game and you know one card is just better than the others, well, you bid more for it. If there's a province on an area majority map and it's worth way more than the other ones, well, now you have to make it a bigger priority. And so it doesn't actually cause that big of problems to have things that are unbalanced. It just causes players to have to adapt the strategy a little. Yeah, those sorts of systems, uh, especially things like auctions, can be self-balancing to a point in in games. And those are, are really good ways to control some of the, the texture and, and imbalances that might pop up in, in your content is if you have interactions framed through some of those those lenses where players can compete for the thing that's sort of over the the power curve the interesting thing about that that learning on ramp is different players are going to want different things out of your experience and this is something we see a lot in the video game space when we talk about games that have a casual play segment a ranked play but it's still amateur and a professional league you will see balance changes coming from the video game development studio made primarily based on the performance of players in the ranked but amateur league and less balance changes are made based on the performance of players in the absolute highest levels of competitive play because ultimately the game is there to serve the players and the majority of the players are playing at that amateur level. They're not professionals who are deep, deep, deep in the game's mechanics and and speed and reaction and living in, in that game every single day. That's a fantastic point. And you'll actually see a lot of this in random YouTube videos talking about like tier rankings and stuff like that. Someone's playing Apex and they're like, what are you talking about? This new Seer character is completely overpowered. It's ridiculous. What are they talking about? And they are probably absolutely right in a lot of these cases, but that doesn't really matter because a lot of the people, I mean, it matters in the case of Seer because Seer is very busted, but in the most cases, it doesn't matter that someone's not hitting top tier meta because as you say, that's like 0.001% sometimes of the gaming population is playing at that super hyper competitive level. Why would they make balance changes based on 0.001% of the population when they can make it more appealing to most other people? Particularly when there's skill barriers involved. Maybe one character is super overpowered. If you're insanely good at them, if you're not very good at the game, then the character is really weak. And similarly, like some characters in some of these games, like in League of Legends, might be just tearing it up at lower ranks because they have an ability that's really weak. If you can dodge it, but if you can't dodge it, then it's going to hit you like a truck and weaker players aren't able to escape it. Yeah. And that can be really difficult sometimes to to balance around thinking about not just the overall balance of the game, but how is the, the game's balance and the game's perception of fairness changing at different levels of, of skill and in the play. And sometimes board games can fall apart at different levels of play. Uh, Puerto Rico is an interesting example that I've heard tossed about before, where there was a while where Puerto Rico was played semi-competitively, and there became sort of an expected series of opening moves within the game, and if a player deviated from those moves at high levels of play, 
often the player who was sitting directly to their left would win the game mm -hmm. because it's a game with a, a heavy amount of sort of left-right binding in, in the player order of the, the choices. So not all games hold up to all levels of, of rigor and not all games have to. Board game balance can be harder than most because you can't just issue a patch digitally. And as much as some game companies and, and designers rely on you know releasing update packs or clarifying questions or updated rulebooks through th something like Board Game Geek, I personally am a big believer that games need to stand on their own. And when there's a lack of clarity in the rules or an ambiguous situation, expecting your customers and your players to come to you outside of the boundaries of the play experience to clarify that is setting up a, a very odd relationship dynamic for your customers. And I want to empower players to adjudicate the rules of the game within their own session. I don't care that much that they are playing the officially correct way. And I don't want them to come to me to always tell them the correct way to play. I'd rather have them interpret the rules. And as long as they're consistent within their play group, that's fine. I, I often think about games on a scale from a, a fragile game to a sturdy game. Uh, a fragile game requires every rule to be interpreted exactly correctly to be fun. And a sturdy game can, is probably still fun if players misinterpret the rules or potentially are playing wrong. I think everyone's had an experience where they played a game wrong, had a good time, and then later learned, oh, actually, you do this other thing, and we're, we're going to play like that from now on. We just we, we missed that section of the rulebook. And those games, I think, are sturdy. You you messed up a rule, you still had a good time, you play the game again, and maybe you correct that, that rule that you misplayed. Whereas a fragile game, if you misplay the rule, you just have a terrible time. Yeah, Peter has talked before about making games with the mindset of if they make mistakes, what are they most likely to make mistakes on? And if they make certain mistakes, will they still have a good time with it? Even if you get one of the rules wrong, if you're playing um, Dracula's Feast and you slightly misunderstand a player power, it's not really going to make that big of a deal. Yeah. I was actually taught a game called Cross Cariot. The English name is Delt. I'm not sure if you played this game. I'm not. It's a ladder climbing game. It is one of the best games I've ever played. It's fantastic. The idea of it is you have a hand of cards and you're making plays using groupings of the cards so you can have a run or a set of up to three cards the thing is is you have to play them that they're touching each other so it's like hanabi where you can't rearrange your hand you are dealt the hand then you have to deal with it so you're trying to make powerful combos by playing out clusters of cards that unlock more powerful clusters of cards basically i was taught that that game it wasn't a ladder climbing game i was taught that you wanted to be the last person left in the round which is completely the opposite of how the game works and you know what? The game is still fantastic. I highly recommend that variant if you ever want to try it. And that speaks a lot to just how strong the core rules are, that we could literally play the game with the opposite goal, and it was still fantastic. I also like to jump on something that you said, it's difficult to balance for different player groups. And I think that's 100% correct. What my advice would be is aim casual. A lot of people love to think that, yeah, people will be playing high-level tournaments of my games. And the reality of the situation is, even if that happens, which is very, very slim chance, 
it's not going to be many and it's not going to be significant. You need to make sure that the people who are playing your game casually have a great time or you won't ever get people who get to the point of being hardcore. Yeah, and you have to think about people's desire for clarity and precision in a rule set. I work a lot with designers who they're, you know, will suggest, you know, it'll be some language change and they'll say, well, like, here's this, this weird interaction and is this covered in the rule set? And sometimes as a developer, it's my job to say, you know what? No, that case is, is unclear. It's not a hundred percent covered in the rules, but we shouldn't cover it because every line that we add to this rule book is a tiny, tiny step in the staircase of learning this game. And you have to look at a game like Magic the Gathering, which has a learn to play rulebook uh, that's, you know, just a, I want to say it's 12 pages or, or somewhere around those length, maybe it's 20. And then it has a comprehensive tournament rules that's 252 pages. And those are different documents designed for different circumstances. And your game is not going to have high level competitive organized play in most cases. And that's not the case you should be designing your rulebook for. You should mostly be designing your rulebook for onboarding players into your game experience. Mm -hmm. If you're worried about people not understanding a nuanced rules interaction, the people who care about that are the same people who are just going to ask you on BGG or look at your website for your FAQ. It's not a big deal. So we've talked a bit about how sometimes you have to take designs and change them for developing. And I know that that dynamic can be really uncomfortable at points. Do you have any tips on how to handle the designer-developer or designer-publisher dynamic? I think the key is always framing changes in the lens of what they're accomplishing for players. Hmm. I don't make development changes because I want to prove my value as a developer. I'm not changing things just to change them. I want to change things in service to players. So I have a very playtesting-driven development process and often I am looking to identify underlying issues and then come up with a solution that might address multiple of those underlying issues at once. And framing changes through that lens is really helpful at communicating because it's easy to argue with me, John Brieger, my opinion, but it's harder to say, yes, those players who played this game felt this way and they are wrong about their feelings. So sometimes I will have difficulties pushing changes through where they don't like the change that I'm making, but I rarely have difficulties with designers not understanding why I'm making the change. So. I think framing through the lens of the the goal of the change is is really important, more important than what the change is for getting your partners, whether that's a publisher or a designer, on board. John, this is a huge, huge topic that we've only scratched the surface of, but we only have so much time. Is there anything else that you really want to talk about, specifically about solo, but also just about development in general that we haven't covered so far? Developing a game is a lot about building a relationship with the publisher and the designer of the game. Sometimes they're the same person in the case of Robotopia for Jellybean Games. Peter is both the designer and the publisher of the game. But those are sort of separate hats. And it's important as a developer to understand that 
your goal is to make the best experience for the players the game is going to be for and that is in service to the publisher and and to the players and this is like a cliche reality thing you're not there to make friends you're there to make the best possible game and you want to make sure that you are always pushing the quality of the product forward again you don't want to change things just to change things it's about understanding who is going to be playing the game keeping that audience in mind and making the best possible game for them there's no game that's going to be the best game for everyone Mm -hmm. and a lot of development decisions are about those trade-offs so this makes the game better for this segment of players but worse for this segment of players this makes the game more interesting strategically but adds 10 minutes to every play session is that worth it for the market that we're going to sell into this makes the game more fun and easy to handle from an interface perspective, but it adds an extra dollar to the manufacturing cost is the requisite you know, MSRP bump is the fact that this game might be priced at $55 instead of $50 going to keep some of the people who might have had fun playing this game out of the experience because price can also be a barrier to entry. So as a game developer... I am often making compromises to make sure that the the game is going to deliver on its promise, deliver on its experience to the best audience and the, the widest audience possible. And I view my goal as helping more people have more fun. That is a fantastic speech. <laughs> I particularly like that you say most of what you do is trade-offs. And that's that's so right. It's very rare that you're just going to find a solution that is just something that's strictly better than what the designer was thinking. Often it's about adjusting things slightly and like you say, making it slightly worse in some area, but slightly better in another. Well, thanks, John. Before we leave, we always have a fun question at the end. What is the most emotional you've ever gotten playing an analog or digital game? Something I really enjoy in games is that sort of sensation where a game clicks for you and it feels like all the the wheels are are turning in unison and the game just makes sense and it sometimes referred to as a, a flow state and i probably first experienced that in games when i was in elementary school and someone introduced me to magic the gathering uh which was so much more complex than anything i would encountered up to that point and I, I fell in love with the game because of how it made me feel smart and how the way that I played the game and the way that I built my, my deck, uh, most of which were terrible, by the way, because I was, you know, nine, expressed my creativity through the play. And some of my fondest memories of elementary school and middle school and then I I played in high school and sort of stopped in college are come from not just the game but the community that grew around it I think about when in high school we would take road trips with a couple of my friends to go to magic tournaments and we invented all sorts of weird tournament traditions such as the team scent where we all wore the same cologne i don't know why we (laughs) thought that was a cool thing to do it it wasn't god bless you for being the only people in that room wearing cologne (laughs) yeah at least we all smelled good or the donut draft where on our morning drive to the tournament we would buy a box of a dozen assorted donuts where 
every donut was a unique flavor, and then we would select them one by one. <laughs> Everything's got to be a competition with you Magic players, doesn't it? Yeah, it's very interesting now looking back on those moments. I have really fond memories of competing, but I no longer play games competitively or try to compete. That's not the part of games that engages me as a player. And at the time, winning and losing was very important to me and was something that I focused a lot on. And I don't think I could tell you whether I won or lost any of the hobby strategy games I played in the last three months, because that's no longer the part of playing a game that appeals to me and engages me as a player. And I don't know if that's age or just I'm making games now for work and I'm engaging with them at a different level than I, I used to before I was in the industry. But I think it is a, a change in my relationship with how I approach gaming. I've got two games that really emotionally affected me and both are video games. Have you ever heard of Hellblade? I have not. So it's a game where you play as a character suffering from psychosis. And so you should play it with headphones on. And literally the whole time that you're playing, there are voices in your head whispering to you. Sometimes they're helping you. Sometimes they're taunting you. Sometimes they're tricking you. It's like a sort of God of War-esque action game, but much heavier and much slower and much more focused around the weight of the actions that you're taking. It's very narrative driven and it's very experience driven, of course. There's a level where you're in this dark area and when you're in the dark, your character is panicking, but like the voices in your head are like screaming at you and like the screaming is freaking out and you can see something coming towards you, but you're not sure what it is. And like, it's very panic inducing. And eventually you find a torch and it's like, okay, now I can go through this area kind of safely because the monster's scared of light. And there's this moment where you're walking to like the sewer area and there's this grate in front of you. And in order to move ahead, you have to duck down, which would put out your torch and go to the other side of the grate. And in that moment, it took me like a minute or two to work up the courage to just press a button on a controller. And that definitely earns a spot for like an effective game. Like it's a video game that functionally made me scared of the dark. I don't make games that can boast something like that. And then a very different reaction I had was a game called That Dragon Cancer. Yeah. You've heard of that one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the listeners, that one is basically an interactive documentary about a family whose very young son is battling cancer. No spoilers for the major story or anything, but there is a moment where you're in a hospital and there's an unrelated to the game card that you read. It's just like a, a consolation card, someone talking to someone who had cancer. And it was very sad and I read it. And then I looked at another one and then I started reading these and I realized that there wasn't just the two or three that I immediately saw in the room. It's a, it's a walking simulator. So I read the couple cards and I walked out of the room and there were literally hundreds or thousands of these cards just everywhere. And that was a moment where it just hit me so heavily. Like every single one of these cards is such a personal, emotional, real story that someone has. And that's how many people have been affected by this. Yeah. And I don't think I've ever been that overcome with emotion from... I, I, I can't say a work of fiction because it's not. All the cards are real. No, That Dragon Cancer for listeners who aren't familiar, which you should absolutely play is based on the, the developer's real story and relationship with their son. Yeah, and there's a, um, a documentary that you can find on YouTube that I recommend after having played it. And there's a few things that were symbolism and metaphor in that that make a lot more sense once you've played it. 
there was a level where you were in a hospital and you're like playing a Mario Kart sort of style game and you're popping these balloons that are like hand shaped. And then when you go watch the documentary, you see the kid playing in the hospital and the nurses have made little balloons out of the gloves by blowing it up. Watching the documentary afterwards hit me like twice as hard because it was like this this family that I've just been experiencing. Now I'm I'm seeing them again, but like in real life. It was very powerful. So that's our show. John, before we go, is there anything that you'd like to plug? Your Brigger Creative Services or anything that you're working on? The floor is yours. Yeah. If people are interested in learning more about the work that my team does at Brigger Creative, I highly encourage you to check out our website, which not only has games we worked on, but also case studies of how we approach our work on those titles. You can find that at BriegerCreative.com, B-R-I-E-G-E-R creative.com. And there's also a contact form on there. If you want to reach out to me, I got so much advice and help and mentorship when I was getting into making games. And I, I try to pay that forward and, and meet with people when they reach out to me or refer them to the right people to help them. So if you are making a game or you're interested in making games, please, please reach out. I'm always, always happy to talk. Fantastic. Thanks so much, John. I really appreciate you being here. Thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye everyone. Thanks for joining us. You can follow us on Facebook or Twitter at funproblemspod or reach us via email at funproblemspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you, and if you enjoyed the podcast, please tell a friend.